Welcome to today's special episode of Monarchism Unfiltered. I'm one of your hosts, Mikosk. This is me, Bronze. This is me, I am. But this also- is no normal episode. For the 10th, I think, I hope, episode of the show, we'll be doing a very special thing where there are other people in this voice chat who, through the show, will be asking us questions that we will discuss. So the person, for those viewing who don't know, they will be unmuted, they will ask their questions, and then they and then we will discuss that question. Yeah. yeah. So if That's... you know, so you know, if there are any questions, fire away. Yes. I, I'm I'm not sure about it, but I think when people join in Discord. Uh, there will probably be a pinging sound in the, the recording, which might might or might not be annoying. Yes. Also, I mean, we'll see. Yeah. If it, it is too annoying, I'll try to we'll try to fix it in post, but we'll see. Also, yeah, we, we can just we can give the the listeners later experience. Yeah. Also, now now the listen well now the fans that are here and the listen and the listener too knows that this is recorded via Discord. I mean, what like what is, what is that going to do? Um, like like they I I, th- I think most of them could figure that out. Anyway, so bef- while while we wait for the questions to roll in, uh, how yeah we have like two people who've been writing them for a while. Huh? Well, I think I think we can briefly. Briefly, I don't know, give thoughts on social distancing. Um, and this is a prime example of it. Yeah, well, I mean, this is this is how we socially distance. We do podcasts. Um, yeah. I mean, social distancing is, is hilarious in some levels because, like, the, the horror stories I've been hearing of people either following them or not following them are, are a treat. Like, I mean, there's the, there's the infamous case of the Derbyshire police who used drones to monitor people taking walks in the Peak District because the length of those walks was considered by the police to be unessential. So they, you know, because the if it doesn't know, the Peak District is a national park in the north of England that you know, and people decided, yeah, well, you know, how do I get away from people? I'm going to take a long walk in this wide open national park where there are very few people. But the police decided that if you take a walk that's like more, longer than two hours and you get very far from your house, that walk is no longer considered essential. And so they used drones to monitor those people. Drone striking, drone striking people who walk too long. In any case, first, um, should, should we? I, I think we should discuss the question of. Uh, specific dynasties rather than um, and like intermonarchist uh, cooperation because I think this also then extends into um, issues around nationalism because as far as I can tell um, actually sorry yeah first we need to unmute him yeah yeah sorry <laughs> sorry this is new to us as well hello hello Okay. okay. So what is what is your question? Yeah. So my question is about 
royalists, Minaf Arshul monarchies cooperate or support their own favorite dynasty or the one they see as the most fragile, etc. Oh. Yeah, so I, I I actually have thought about this a lot because um, I think oftentimes the question of dynasties um, usually ends up being just a kind of, um, it usually ends up being just a case of um, what, or almost, yeah, it, it basically it's just a question of like what political principles you believe in most of the time. Um, and yeah. I think the most obvious example of this would be um, France, in that who who you support, Bonaparte, um, Orléans, or uh, like legitimism, and um, is basically just like it's political barometer. It's just um, it's just a case of are you like progressive, i.e. Bonapartist. Are you constitutionist, Orleanist, or are you um, legitimate, like reactionary? Um, quote unquote. So, like, what type of monarchy you support very highly influences who you support, and so I think that then it comes down to, yeah, I mean, you should be like as consolidating as possible to, you know, have like a broad yeah. appeal, but you shouldn't go so far as to like compromise your core ideals. Yeah, there, there, there's there like you see this uh, like comparing dynasties to political parties is a bit wrong, but you see this in uh, in some political parties where they try to be so big tent that they just lose any kind of meaning. And there is a value in trying to in trying to merge the gap and bring all monarchists together, but more often than not, like just keeping to your core appeal also has its uh, victories. Yeah, I mean, it's I think. There's a, um, I think you can see this more broadly in nationalism than really you can see in um, monarchism, but obviously the two overlap quite a bit. But like very often the issue in any kind of um, radical politics is the issue of sectarianism, where, and I mean, you see this most clearly with, say, Trotskyist sects, where they, they you know, um, I think the the fourth international in south africa had four members so the trotskyist organization had four members of whom um there were there were like further subdivisions essentially down to like one person subdivisions um and you see similar tendencies in um in nationalist circles and historically you see the same sort of thing with um with monarchy but you don't obviously it's not we don't think about it so much because of the um because of the smaller nature and more marginal status of of monarchist politics as such um i would agree with bronze generally that i think the most important thing really is um it's not to try and do this anti-sectarian thing of we're going to make a bigger a bigger a larger appealing group that's so broad tent that it just ends up being like a nothing essentially um because most of the time what you end up doing then is you'll if you if you're at any relevant scale you'll end up becoming affiliated to some kind of tribal politics um which is usually like it's a long long death road then 
Um, and if you're at a smaller scale, usually you're just then another sect. Um, and that's, that's the primary issue that I see with pretty much any kind of radical politics. Um, and monarchism, I think, does show it even to a greater degree because there's not as many, there's not as much unification. So people can have much, like very different ideas and whatnot. Um, I mean, I, I think that answers his question. Like, yeah. Let's go on to the, the next one. So, Inky, hello, question. Uh, unmute him. Oh, no. no, he's okay. Yeah, hello, Inky. What, what is your question for us? My question is What could have Nicholas II done to keep the Romanovs in power in Russia? That's a. We actually had a conversation about us, this um, uh, outside I of the server, though. Um... I mean, yeah, the quick I think episode six, uh, six for those wondering, uh, decision systems in Russia, which, you know, that makes sense. But yeah, I am. Yeah, I was going to say, basically, his best option would have been just, just to give um, Stoliop and proper bodyguards so that he doesn't get killed, um, and then, like, not enter World War One. Um, like, I think that would have been the easiest thing he could have done. Um, because Russia was not ready to enter the war. Um, entering the war could have only ended badly. Uh, he'd already compromised once in 1905, and so he was not able to compromise again um, because people didn't believe him and like he wasn't particularly willing either. Um, I don't think compromise would have helped him because I, I think if he'd compromised, if he'd proclaimed a new constitution in 1917 um i think you still would have had the outburst of the soviets and then you basically would have just had um provisional slash dual government in 1917 but with a monarch um which i think would have just ended the same way basically because yeah i mean it, it's i think it's just the case that uh he needed to not enter the war or have Stoliopin, um not the minister. Yeah, not dead, basically. Um, I don't know if other people would agree with that, though. I mean, it, it, it sounds about right. Like... Yeah, but I mean, I also think that, like, Nicky, he, he was a bit ambitious. For example, um, I think there's a lot thing that not a lot of people know about, which is that in 1904, he actually got a secret deal from the Japanese that would have allowed the Russians to take all of Manchuria, but given all of Korea to Japan. But he, to his mind, that was an insultingly meager deal for the Russians, as he wanted Korea included into the Russian Empire. And so due to that ambition, he sparked a disastrous war with uh, Japan. And I think that's a common theme throughout his reign, that he was often just too ambitious he 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 believed very much in in his own authority which you, you think yeah that's fair dues you are you are the czar of russia but so, sometimes he he went too far and i think he could have you know just just take it and leave it yeah just 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 chilled out a bit as, as we would I mean manchuria i mean manchuria is the most valuable part of north china <laughs> 
But not as good as it's not sense. a good career though. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean yeah. and Aventuria was handed to him on a silver platter by the Japanese. They said, "Take it, go ahead, as long as we can have Korea." Yeah, I mean that's that's quite bizarre that he that he didn't accept that. I mean, I would have like. I mean, but the issue, but the but the issues I can kind of understand them. By 1904, Manchuria was already Russian. Like, like the yeah, the, mean, the, but, the, but the railway go. Yeah, but you can officially annex it. Um, and yeah, and I mean, and 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 you know who brokered this deal? It was like the the, the man, the sole man who had the potential to save Russia, which was Stolyopin. Stolyopin. Yeah. Yeah. And he got Based disastrously King. murdered. I mean, that there was a conspiracy that like Nicholas was conspiracy. You know, it was a part of the murder, and and you know, but that's all complicated. I'm not I mean, sure he would have been able to organize that though. Yeah, no, that... I mean, although Stolyopin had a lot of enemies, and it seems, and that uh, the the ticket for the revolutionary who went into the Kiev Opera to shoot Stolyopin, his ticket to access the opera had been paid for by high-ranking members of the Russian court. Okay, but that could be, I mean, that the, Russian, the Russian court, were, that doesn't say that... No, I don't think like, that like that uh, Tsar Nicholas did it. I just think that's interesting. That, like, someone... I mean, that could even be Yusupov. Just, like, yeah, or... I, no, yeah, I think it, I think it was Yusupov. I, I, Nicholas wasn't involved at all. But So it, really, really what we determined... But it was an effort by someone. It wasn't a lone... Yeah, yeah, it wasn't a lone gunman. I mean, so what we've determined then is that he, what he should have done is you should have exiled Yusupov. Um, that's the, yeah. that's well, the... Yusupov was suspected, but yeah. I mean, Yusup, Yusupov was a bit of a degenerate anyway. Um, but the... Yeah, his Oxford days are quite interesting because um, he just, like, hung around and sort of... He bummed around and had a parrot and would, like... He he would wake up at like two, and like drink vodka in a like. I think it was described as like a rug, essentially. Um, so that that's like what he did, but the based I think that, that yeah I mean it's it's very student life. I mean that's 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 what happens at Oxford. I that's just I yeah. Yeah, I mean the the I think, I mean that that is quite interesting that you say about um, Nicholas being quite ambitious, because then it, it's that's quite similar to actually uh, Wilhelm II, uh, good old Willy. Yeah, well he was ambitious, and also he was a man who wanted to do everything himself. Like he, he and was high on cocaine. Well, yeah, but that included everyone. Everyone at the time did lo- loads of. Uh, yeah, I mean the the Pope did coke. Yeah, time. Stolyopin, Nicky, the Pope, everyone was was on it. Yeah, so like you can't really blame him. Um, no, I don't. I don't think that's it. But he like he was involved in provincial midwifery and like appointing midwives, and reducing the sentences of Stalin and Trotsky was something he did on repeated occasions. Um, Which epic ba- based foresight. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean. There's a specific instance in 1913 where Stalin has just organized the Tiflis bank robbery, which was infamous, and and 13 people were killed in the bank robbery, and and masses, like I think multiple millions of rubles were stolen and funneled into revolutionary causes, and Stalin 
the mastermind behind this plan, he was arrested, given five years exile in Siberia, and and then well, he went, first he was sentenced to death, then the interior minister gave him five years of exile and hard labor in Siberia, and then the Tsar saw this and shortened his sentence to three years. What? Why? Do we and know yet, what? I don't know why, but he was very a big fan of like being merciful and shortening people's sentences. But then also like hanging and like doing massacres. Yeah, he he hung a lot of people, but um, I don't I don't know why that happened. That is very strange. And Stalin did not serve those three years in in the labor camp. He escaped after. Uh, it, it was either a couple of months or a year. Yeah, I mean, not very. I mean, I seem to remember that those labor camps were mainly used for, like, recruiting um, more than anything else and, like, organization. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the the, lab, the czarist labor camp system was very lax in, in strange ways. Yeah. Um, so let's speak. I think, I think we've gone a bit into yeah, the, yeah. Sorry. Into the weeds uh, here. Although I think it is interesting. And if you are interested, I have plugged this book before. It's House of the Dead, the Russian exile under the Tsars that details how and what happened and what a disastrous failure the Siberian program was in multiple ways. Yeah, so next, uh, I think we'll have the next question then. Okay. Uh, so do we do Frank's ones or do we do Philip's? We, we can go back. Okay, then, uh, Philip, it is. Hello. Hello. What's your, what's your question? Um, so I was wondering, what about monarchy makes it, like, extremely universal to a point where, like, every civilization at some point in its history has had a monarchy? With the ba- it's usually on the basis of divine right and hereditary succession. Well... The the answer is the answer is fairly simple and um, it's easy to explain on a how am I going to put this on a evol- uh, on a on two scales basically you have a monarchy that emerges from nomadic invasions and you have a monarchy that emerges from extended familial ties so. Monarchy that emerges from nomadic traditions. Typically, uh, nomads, uh, especially we're talking like like pre-Bronze Age, really, or really Bronze Age, if we really want to go with it, had a very concrete notion of private property. So when they invaded a land, they the first thing they did was split it up into like their land and areas of influence, if you, if you want like that. While the comparatively um, uh, settled Bronze Age populations did not have a notion of private property. They had private com- property in common, etc. The 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 notion of private property naturally leads itself into a notion of monarchicism. One holds the land, one makes use of the land, and one passes passes it down to its successors. The monarchy that emerged from extended familial tries is the inverse. It, basically, a family, due to what amounts to to marriage. Or also, well, I'm jumping myself. The first type of monarchies came from this, like from nomadic invaders, when they weren't theocratic. Theocratic monarchies emerged 
there, there's a debate if they emerged themselves and then the religion came uh, came next or if the religion emerged first and then gave origins to the monarchies it's a bit it's a bit out there because of the examples of we have these early bronze age monarchies all of them are hydraulic empires and hydraulic empires work better under single vision uh, and single uh, like under single le- leadership typically because a single person often often is more keenly aware of what happens when you fail to maintain the canals for example so there's that the clan based monarchies uh, are are much more easy to us and typically these are these happen when the notion of private property is already comparatively well established and what happens is basically through marriage alliance uh, accumulation of wealth and property and sometimes legitimacy via like via like claiming ancient lineage and dynastic and and this is and like and like basically claiming mystical power towards itself these monarchies came into came into fruition religion also played an important part in shaping uh, various monarchies throughout the planet and how they work and how they functioned but generally speaking monarchism is a good system when a you need long term when in order for your country to not collapse you need long term concerns so for example maintaining maintaining dams and generally hydraulic empires b when uh, when uh, unity of vision gives more dividends than uh, lack thereof so in in communal based systems he the uh, uh, a society that has unified vision and and keeps it long enough will naturally lead and give better results than a society whose leadership is constantly changing or is constantly bickering in amongst itself as was the case in early republics and oligarchies yeah and it's 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 a case of the old adage any diet works as long as you you stick to it as it were you know if you have a, a monarch and he has a vision like no matter what the vision is it's usually going to end, unless he has like a, just a terrible vision, it's usually going to end up outperforming a bunch of competing visions because then none of those will be realized. Yeah. And so that's why power sort of has like a nature to concentrate into someone. And then as for the part about divine right, I'm you know, once a man or a few men, usually men, you know, have a, have concentrated the power onto themselves. They need some sort of legitimacy in order to keep onto that power, to make sure that people have it in their heads that their vision, their specific vision, is the right vision. And so they usually do this by tying themselves to some sort of deity. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I I think also the other the other reason, at least. Um, if you look at the justifications that people have given for monarchy, um, the the other important one as well, related to Bronze's point about um, vision, is this idea that the monarch is, um, in a certain sense, apolitical, and that a monarchical society is, in a certain sense, beyond politics in a way that... Um, in a way that a republican or um, oligarchical society isn't, and um, this is this is basically what um, Plato's point is. Plato's point about 
um, why monarch why he considers monarchy to be superior to oligarchy and or aristocracy, sorry, and um, democracy is because monarchy is less political, essentially. Um, and yeah. Um, oh, sorry, why he considers aristocracy to be better because it's less political, um, where he thinks that monarchy is more. And that, that I think is basically, that plus, that has been a, a very traditional justification. Um, and why people move to divine right is this concept that the monarch is in a certain sense beyond uh, ordinary human concerns, um, which is why we've seen that generally um, great empires usually will end up being um, monotheistic or uh, monolatrist or um, monist in the case yeah, of monist. Um, mo monist is actually the best term, um, sorry, because that monist includes then the Roman Empire with the one. Um, the Stoics were pantheists, um, which then covers the uh, the epigene, um, i.e. The, the successors to Alexander, um, and obviously China um, is is good examples then. Also, in case, for the for those of us less uh, literate in philosophy, monist well philosophy and theology, monism or monist refers to a belief system that no matter how many individual elements it manifests, has a single central point. This is distinct from monotheism, but but it's but it are both very related. So basically, when we say monist, think a religion that no matter what its trappings has a core principle or originative principle. In, yeah, so in China, this is um, heaven. So yeah. that's the whole point of mandate of heaven, um, or even Tao, in um, and then things like Dharma, Brahman, um, in India, and those sorts of concepts. Um, yeah. Well, I think this answers this question. Okay. So what next? Franks or tokens? Yeah, so Frank, what what is your question? Yeah. Uh, my question was uh, thoughts churches you men are It's cutting a bit off, but uh, I could think you question... could you repeat yeah. your question because you're cutting a bit. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, my question was since I know you guys are quite religious, I wanted your thoughts on churches being closed and stuff. Okay, so due to the quarantine. I mean, in in a way, it is an interesting question because, like, wasn't it wasn't it kind of the justifications for the first crusade that people were un were being prohibited from like having proper religious service due to the Turks, and now here we are in a quarantine <laughs> with the churches being closed. Well, are, you, think... are you saying the Turks are a plague? Uh, we don't want any random. I, th I, th I think the issue was at that point was that uh, the Turks were preventing preventing pilgrimage to the yeah. Holy Land. That was the thing. Yeah, that but was th that was the main justification. But I, I I think what's interesting is that I to, to give it to give it some perspective is that often historic Christians, e even saints, didn't receive sac the sacrament. Act all that often, you know. 
Saint Louis uh, is purported to only have received Holy Communion twice a year. And so I think that that, that is very interesting because that gives us like a, this opportunity to reflect on what they mean in our lives and how we are spoilt by having like ready, ready access to them. And so, but also I don't think that just because you know, church is closed that, that that limits our opportunities because, you know, there's still like all the opportunity in the world, especially now that, you know, much, much of everything else is closed to have this reflection, you know, both, both in prayer and in reading the writings of the saints and so forth to reflect on the sacraments and what their absence means for us. Yeah. I mean, there's also the, the way in which, um, People like Pope Francis have basically are doing um, acts of collective prayer at the same sort of time at certain times, and you can tune in and watch services and so forth. And um, so, uh, which is very common with a lot of cathedrals and a lot of um, services, a lot of priests are doing that. Um, so, I think there are um, people. People sometimes overestimate. The degree to which it's hampering the ability for community or uh, interaction with church hierarchy, even. I mean, um, Pope Francis is obviously doing uh, lots of things, and I believe the Archbishop of Canterbury is doing. Uh, yep. He's also been this. doing a lot of prayers and live streams and so forth. Yeah. Um, I mean, because at the end of the day, they're also. They're also uh, trapped, and it's not like they don't do things. So, um, they they have to get something to fill their time with as well. Um, so, I don't think they'll be too upset about. Um, about yeah, and I think it. you know, and most uh, priests uh, that are, that I've heard from, you know, they still have their emails open. So, if there's anything you need to ask of them, you know, I think that's still possible. And uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I, think... I, th I think this uh, presents unique opportunities because you know now that you know we're in the lockdown, you know everyone's sort of having an Ivan Ilyich type moment. Which Ivan, the death of Ivan Ilyich is is a book by Tolstoy, and I'm, you know I, it's not a very spoilery book in which the main character suffers an illness and knows that he will die. And obviously, we're not going to, all of us are going to die. But, you know, and so he sits at home and reflects upon his own mortality. And so, and in that reflection, achieves a series of epiphanies about life and its nature. And I think it's a really good book. And I think that during those current circumstances, a lot of people are sort of having similar experiences to what Ivan Ilyich has in the book. And so I think that's more relevant than ever, you know, like the, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's the thing that uh, Blaise Pascal said of all the problems in the world come from man being unable to sit alone quietly in his room. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, mean, I would agree with that. And I, I think as well, um, it, it's interesting the degree to which people who complain about the church being closed uh, at least in the US, are also like um, almost one to one the same crowd who are like now demanding for 
the end of the lockdown. Um, and those are usually like political, um, uh, like libertarians, essentially, I, as far as I can tell. Um, so, I mean, that's something that's quite interesting. But it, yeah, I think um, I think that's our thoughts in general. Uh, yeah. So, another question. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, conclusion is, you know, don't stop praying. You know, watch the live streams, read, use this time to to reflect. Use your, make use of your e-rosary. Yeah. Or or the, or or the regular one if you have one. If you don't, then I mean, you don't need the beads. You can find all the prayers online, and yeah. Okay, on to the next question. Yeah, so this is a question from Token. Wait, am I on? You're on. What You're is your on. question? Uh, <coughs> fuck. Um, what do you guys think about African monarchy or monarchism in Africa, whether it be northern or sub-Saharan? Okay, that's an interesting question, because in Africa, monarchism is 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 like in europe if in europe it's complicated due to a, a an interlinking of historical factors and ideological factors and economic factors and all that and africa it's even more complicated because add on to all that i just said the factor of ethnicity and like the the like, like you have like in in some areas of Africa, monarchism takes on decidedly secessionist ends, in which it's a in which it is a specific ethnicity or tribe that's trying to succeed from the post-colonial state in which they find themselves. Other times, it's an it's an opposition to. I don't want to say modernity, but sometimes there's also a religious underpinning on this. So, like for example, I've heard that in Nigeria. Some support the emirs, well, the few emirs that remain Islamic, because a lot of them have converted to Christianity, uh, in all, as, as in a direct opposition towards Christianity in the south. But that is also related to ethnical tensions. In in many cases, monarchism in, in Africa has this intense ethnic character to it that both helps it have a strong base, but kind of hampers it in its spread, because it ultimately then becomes a question of ethnic supremacism rather than ideological supremacism. Well, I mean, the other the other thing here then is that um, very often the impetus for for like actual like a, a monarchical state um, waxes pretty quickly because for whatever reason the you know the 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 monarch or the ethnicity become reconciled to whatever state they find themselves in, be that by way of um, bribery or um, you know economic development or just like not wanting to fight a civil war, these kinds of things. Um, or official recognition or a special states such as paramount chief. There are many yeah, ways. Uh, the 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 most common thing is like you know traditional leadership and like people put this into the context of like and you, you even find like left-wing groups um who will who will like end up opposing um like not having monarchy which is what the case is in south africa at the moment 
uh, with the EFF, where the EFF are like, we want to further support our chiefs and um, our kings because we want to have like an African democracy um, and like to contest received notions of democracy uh, in 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 yeah in South Africa. And you see you see similar things in like Uganda or wherever else. Um, and I mean that, that Mikoski, you know something a bit about Libyan monarchism, I think. Um, which yes, be... uh, I'm, I'm familiar with Libyan monarchism. Libyan monarchism traces its origins to the Senussi order. Uh, in in a in a in, in a hilarious turn of faith, I've heard Libya be compared to the Arab Prussia because the monarchy emerged due to a religious order turning secular. Secular in air quotes in both for Prussia and and Libya, and basically the Senussi order became the House of Senussi, and uh, the the this entire dynasty had its origin in East. Libya, yeah, in eastern Libya, also known as Cyrenaica, and therefore it's very strong there. And back in like 2012, when the the situation in Libya was like stabilizing, basically during the first ceasefire, the the one that lasted, not the one that was paper thin and lasted three seconds. Um, the uh, regional council of Cyrenaica just became like. Either by luck, or maybe Cyrenaicans are just that monarchist, just became absolutely filled with monarchists, and they started demanding that the that the monarchy be restored in full. Then the civil war picked up again, and everything went quiet. And I've heard reports that they're back at it again, and hopefully they succeed. But still, the the uh, Libya is a good example of it. There is a question of there is uh, a logic of regionalism on this. Different ethnicities. Cyrenaica uh, has historically been historically quite ancient and uh, very urbanized, with its with its inland being almost completely de depopulated, not having the like they're, they're literally a case, unlike the rest of Libya, where the tribes and the urbanites are separate. The urbanites and the tribes are the same people, and they all support the same cause. Yeah, and I mean, so the usual thing you end up seeing, and especially where the monarchies do still exist and have a degree of power, is some kind of constitutional arrangement. Um, so you have, um, I believe you have constitutional arrangements in Uganda uh, with the Uganda cover um, ship. Uh, I believe there are constitutional arrangements in um in Nigeria, with their, with their, um, with their, like, I think it's with the Caliph. I believe he there's constitutional arrangements with them. I think there's also constitutional arrangements with some of the South. Um, a lot of these are also because like these people were big landowners or and still are, um, and so they they have a lot of weight and money to throw around. Um, which is usually helpful. And I, I think the difference is actually with, there, there can be a, di like, obviously Ethiopia um, is a different case because it maintained an independent monarchy um, and potentially like the, the North Africans who were also 
independent or semi-independent states where they had um, where they had a degree of um, a degree of like a, a proper system rather than um, integrated tribal systems, and that that I think has meant that monarchism in places like uh, Ethiopia, um, Egypt, even probably um, probably like Sudan with the with the um, with the Mahdists um, has meant that it's it's more ideological there, as far as I can tell. And I mean, I, I think I think the if there was a if there was a place that I would guess in Africa that would possibly become more monarchical, uh, would I I would posit probably. Um, Either like from what I know, South Africa, or maybe Ethiopia, just because of it, it seems that Ethiopia is increasingly moving away from its communist past, and that will probably allow for a for a greater consideration. Um, so, yeah. So um, I think the next question would be would be good. Yeah. Unless Brahms has some comments about African Yeah, no, that's fine. So, yeah, so the next question comes from a Dwarven. He has been unmuted, so he's only muted because he himself wants to remain muted. Okay. No, I can ask the question. So, in the United States as a whole, where would a monarchy Dwarven? more likely be able to thrive? Uh, the North. I think he's saying South something, but it's so damn quiet. How? Oh, sorry, I'm literally yelling. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It was not, it was on my end. Sorry. Let me reiterate. Uh, would a monarchy be more likely to thrive in the in the United States, North, the South, or the Latin South, whereas like California, Arizona, that kind of area? Ah, uh, the uh, the ever popular question. Well, the issue here is that valid as uh, as that question is, I think we have to like 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 level the playing field here, and and I think the rest of the host will agree with me that a monarchy will only come to America after after something terrible has happened to America, basically. Are you are you suggesting that Trump is not already king? He has like declared himself king. Uh, I, like, have you not seen this? I mean, I don't know. I just don't like that my kings are rich businessmen. I think it structural conflict of interest and attitudes there. But uh, the base logic is this: like the dwarven's question can be interpreted in two sense. Do, do like uh, out of the box, America as it is now is extremely unlikely. Something terrible has to happen. Like we're talking fallout tire levels of. Uh, Armageddon to basically happen upon it, or I don't know, a cataclysmic failing of the presidential government in in such a magical way that it doesn't lead into either insano communism or turbo insano fascism. So, out of the blue, the question is a there is no possibility. 
But I mean, we... I mean, the thing is, is that something so radical would have to happen that it, with it, it would destroy the notion of America itself. Yeah. And so what that would look like is very hard to posit. I mean, if, if you were going to like just posit like where are they most likely to have monarchies almost to the degree of like post-political calamity um, and like the US breaks up, I would say the Midwest um, because yeah. there's, a, there's a whole bunch of like, and, and possibly Texas, basically anywhere that has um religious fundamentalists i think is more and likely large landowners yeah large landowners and political fundamentalists i think are more likely to produce uh monarchies than the other other region um because essentially people with the means to consolidate power onto themselves yes and and like an ideology there that will justify it to do, to to a greater degree because Obviously, the Bible, especially the King James version, uh, is very monarchist. Um, so, I mean, if you want me to call it, I would say uh, independent fundamental Baptists and King James onlyists are your go-to people for monarchism in the U.S. Basically, um, I don't know if. if you would have other predictions. I mean, if we're also going on an historical angle, we have the the South is also like abstractly speaking, the South is also a good bet. I mean, during the American Civil War, the South there was a group of people in the South that had their own newspaper, and they called themselves the Imperialists, if memory serves. I found this article over a decade ago, and I can't find it anymore. So. If I'm talking out my ass, well, feel free to correct me since this is me recalling information I haven't seen in a decade. The, the, basically, these groups of people who saw the nation-building character of the monarch wanted to create a confederate monarch in order so that the confederate states could have a national identity beyond just being in a civil war. So you have, in uh, that angle, as obtuse or tasteless it might be to some, is still like a valid point. So in it is hypothetical that any area of America that splits off in order to become less American could potentially adopt uh, monarchism as a tactic in order to increase distinction. Yeah, um, Dwarven would like to, to place a secondary comment. And we would like to remind all of those here that you can ask more than one question. Yeah, to so go, you know, ask away. So um, if memory serves me correct, President Davis of the Confederate States was actually openly endorsed by the Pope at the time, meaning that he probably would have had a good chance of achieving probably a Catholic monarchy, considering President Davis was a Catholic. That is fair point. Thanks for the additional information. Your uh, your next qu you uh, your your second question. You have to like say it. No, I, I think the I mean the interesting thing ab about 
the, the endorsing of people during the American Civil War is that uh, people saw in that conflict reflections of their own society. So, for example, Prussia, who was at the time centralizing their grip on Germany, supported the North because they saw in themselves this sort of saw in them the same urge of like creating this united structure, whether that be a Germany or the United States. While the Tsar also supported the North because he thought, well, I'm freeing the serfs, they're freeing the slaves. That's a fairly similar kind of narrative of freedom. Well, for example, someone from Bavaria would perhaps support the South because they were saying, okay, so there's this group and they are in the process of being unified into a larger polity. And I'm resisting against a very similar process. So who they endorsed doesn't actually have that much of a... And it doesn't go for just the American Civil War, of course. This goes for any... Of like how they felt about slavery or the Civil War in general, but more effects on what the, how they viewed themselves in their own context. Yeah, um, and yeah, Dorvan had a second comment about the economic system. Yeah. yeah. So, in third world countries, what would be the most ideal economic system to push them out of poverty and into a, a more industrialized or developed state? An well, we have an economist, so... Uh, well, I'm, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not technically an economist. But I do have well, a historian. Well, yeah, I, you I, have I an have economics a, degree. Yeah, I have an yeah. So I mean, that is an interesting question. It's a, it's a pretty big question, but I'll, I'll I'll try my best. So I mean, what you have to look at then is what are the economic factors that affect third world countries, and so I think there is there there are two major factors. One is outside influence. So that is what some would, would call Western neocolonialism. So that usually involves governments that, you know, that act, host, you know, that enforce anti-competitive standards that keep third world nations from competing. But it can also include large Western I, in, I use Western as a byword for from the first world, not not as a geographic term. You know, corporations that have exploitative relations with third world countries. You know, and so because today we have com corporations that are so large and so powerful that they are on the scale of nations, and so when it comes to say small you know, not that well endowed with resources, third world nations, they can often be marginalized by large corporations. So, you know, and so they set up exploitative factories. And so if they try to change the relations, that is the third world governments change the relations between themselves and the corporations, they often face feedback, you know. The other thing, 
is a lack of quality institutions. Because, you know, people don't create wealth by themselves. Because, you know, if you want to set up a factory, what what do you need? You need a lot of institutions to make that happen. You need a good school system that can educate people to to like have the skills required to do those jobs you know and that also requires an, a governmental system that is you know free of corruption and it also requires for example if you want a factory you need quality of railroads and transportations that can access it and so that becomes very nebulous because you would think you know, okay, so the the more endowed nations could give aid to the less endowed nations and thereby help them build institutions. But that 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 often doesn't work out that way because aid is quite complicated. You see, it does not just work that oh, you give them the money and then good things happen. Because one, you know that money could be spent in a very bad way enriching some government middleman or 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 the the despotic ruler of that country and so that, so to counteract that western nations often put you know clauses and riders along with the aid but that those often work very poorly because they have the effect of not enforcing the interests of the people of that nation, but the Western government that gave the aid. And so I think the central step would be to solve the first problem. That is, create a system where large corporations are accountable for what they do. And so I think, you know, that... That has multiple layers. For example, you know, that comes down to tax, that comes down to, you know, child well, the, labor the, practices. I mean, the, the, the proposal that the, the Pope seems to be pro at the moment would be a global minimum wage um, and like UN uh, labor protection laws because that would like help solve a lot of the issue of like cross-border like differences of of like labor laws um which would which would help quite significantly basically um and it would it would reduce like um exit push on say you know like Amer mexicans want to go to america because Mexico is not all that good and pays quite low there. Um, so then they move to America, but because they can't get in legally, they get in legally. And when they get in illegally, then um, they get like paid little, like very little. So what you basically want, at least from the, Mex um, the American perspective, is that you want um, wages for potential illegal immigrants to be higher in Mexico than in America. So you want it to be uh, a waste of money for the person to move to the US, basically. And that would also then include like schools and whatnot. 
um, and like violence in communities. Um, and I think that yeah, I mean, I mean, you have to you have to even the playing field because you know it, and it's it's not just wages because here's the thing is that if you were to you know establish an enterprise in a country, you know, they often could not compete on the same grounds as a Western corporations due to things like IMF trade regulations and the WTO. And so that becomes complicated. And so I think the main thing is that, you know, you have to even the playing field, you know. And so I, th- I, th- so I think an, like an even like a global minimum wage would be a step in the right direction. Yeah, and I think that's part of why the Pope is quite pro it, because obviously he as well has has to think about lots of different uh, lots of different peoples, um, not just Westerns, basically. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think beyond that, it, it seems that you know. Those countries that have done very well, like North Korea, which in at independence was as poor as most of Africa, is now much richer. You mean South Korea? South Korea. I mean, even North Korea is now richer than most of Africa. Yeah, they were, but South Korea, I think, is more emblematic of the point you're trying to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, but I mean, anyway, both of them are notable in that. They have, uh, they had strong anti-corruption laws. Uh, there was strong government over. There is strong government over. Sorry, in South Korea, there was strong government oversight of businesses, um, and there was like unified vision with the with the uh, Singman Ri dictatorship. Um, and so that combination of low corruption. Uh, government control and direction led to very rapid industrialization and wealth creation, and then they became much better. And like then they liberalized. I mean, more, I mean to, 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 again. to to give an example of how hardcore South Korean industrialization was, one of the major uh, metalworks in South Korea was at the start of uh, South Korea's existence a clothier. Most of South Korean's industry was clothier. And the dictatorship brought all the owners of these clothing industries and said, you will now start making steel or we will kill you. And uh, they t- they took the, we will now make steel, and steel they did make. So, uh, yeah, I know, yeah, I mean, it's like uh, Hyundai was a, was a, yeah, Hyundai was a textile company they got forced to make uh ships but the yeah and obviously that was that was like really useful good whatever um but i i think the main thing is that like they had a vision control yeah they had they had a control and they had a long-term vision and so they knew what they had to do to build those institutions that were necessary to create that wealth yeah, uh, yeah, I, I I would agree with all that. Uh, yeah, who is who is next? Sorry, in terms of the questions. So that's Frank again. Yep. Yeah. 
Hello, hello. hello. Yeah. What's your second question? Uh, um, a second. Uh. Ah, thoughts on tradition as family structures, especially when it comes to um. More of the online tradition that you like chefs. Wow. So I I think with like a lot of people basically take traditionalism to mean like the 1960s is yep. the is the very like the most common thing. I mean you see this even like the the uh the trad girl meme where it's like you know it's 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 this kind of 60s aesthetic uh that yeah the whole the whole the whole two and a half children on a labrador thing yeah yeah <laughs> instead of two and a half acres and a cow uh the so yeah i mean the the at least it like i mean that was a very i think the kind of 60s aesthetic that a lot of traditionalists are, are caught up in is uh like very cringe because it was an incredibly unstable social formation that only existed because of like the need to rebuild like from like the the need to rebuild from like the great depression world war uh, uh and like world war Two, and that's like why it came into existence and it's like no one you know and it's also it's like this like it's very american and so i always find it strange when you see this in like the uk because the 50s and the 60s in the uk were like really shit um, yeah it was it was clean air acts if you lived in london you had a black lung and uh that was right yeah. You ate tinned fruit. Like, that was... It was yeah, black you, ate, you, ate, you ate tinned herring from South Africa and horse meat. And, and you... But, you know, I mean, so that... What is interesting that describes the UK 50s is that the original Ian Fleming, James Bond novels, had spent a lot more pages on describing Bond eating than they did on him fighting. Because that was like a way to live out your fantasy because he would go to northern France and eat oysters with mountains of butter. So that was sort of the the fantasy of the British person of the early fifties. That that sound like oysters butter sounds uh I, I mean it wasn't specific I I don't it was it was that there was oh, you know, no, I mean, I, I've seen that. I've seen that in, in Bond uh in Bond. Yeah they, it's, he it's, ate it's, a it's lot like... of butter in those books. And like, yeah, even, yeah. like all the tense sort of discussions with the main villains were always over lunch, and I, you know, because they, they had to fit him eating all these luxurious me- meals into the book. Well, not they, yeah. but Ian Fleming, who you know, and he would eat av- avocado pears and stuff. And I mean, what's interesting is that during this time, Ian Fleming was living in the Caribbean in Jamaica and gorging himself on on avocado avocado pears and so forth. Yeah, so um, you know, live live vicariously through James Bond. Um, yeah, that, but that was the vicarious. It wasn't that he gets to ride fast cars or shoot supervillains, and you know, go yeah, to bed with I, oyster and butter lifestyle. Yeah, there was just yeah, you, know, you get to to eat baguettes with butter. That was like his luxurious fantasy. Also, everyone lived in like 
social housing that had been like thrown up in a month um and it was like i mean you know and they had these sort of new cities that if you're in the uk and you've ever been to stevenage then that sort of oh god i mean they're awful they're they're all awful that's Um, that's the world of the 1950s and that's not you know cities are made for cars people yeah you know milton Keynes and so forth yeah oh god i mean milton Keynes. um yeah, now we're just fronting about places we don't like. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's one big parking lot. Yeah. Okay. Slightly sidetracked, but the base but, yeah. The base idea is that traditionalism and traditional family relations in the internet are often stereotyped into just nineteen sixties America, and that actually makes completely no sense. Yeah, and not like what most people in nineteen fifties America were living through either. Just like this this narrow-ish middle class of white people in America that let you know that lived through this, and so it's not like a global, you know, long time. Tra- it's it's there's nothing traditional about it, you know. Yeah, but like like we like a baseline of what a traditional family is is an extended family, with believe it or not, where the patriarch and matriarch of the family authority like like there is this whole idea that the woman needs to submit to the husband and although that is set into the bible that's not necessarily what it's meant in medieval societies what typically happened is that you would have a division of absolute authority the most stereotypical one being that the woman had absolute authority inside the house the man had absolute authority outside of the house this was uh, this was the arrangement in portugal for example other other um, other countries had slightly different but typically is same authority different different uh, areas basically yeah i mean um and i think the i think to a certain degree um a lot of the issues with internet traditionalism is that um the the fetishism for a specific time period uh, gets in the way of articulating a coherent set of beliefs about what society should look like. So then it's like, oh, this society should look like the 50s and 60s, rather than saying, okay, this is like, and, and it, it's a kind of mysticism in that it's like, rather than simply saying what you believe, you, you wrap it up in a symbolism. Um, and I, I think that can be harmful for having a clear political program. Yeah, the, the goal of a political program should be to create a better future, not to dress around and play. Um, yes, yeah, so I think Todd, you has a, has a question? Okay, yeah. Uh, unmute him. Yeah, so Todd, what is your question? I know we know you haven't finished writing it even yet, but come on. Uh, I'd like to ask you if you have anything against um, non-monarchist traditional state structure, like, for example, the medieval-style theocracies or the Italian Republic, the Renaissance. Not in a sense of going out and making Germany a merchant republic, but... In those regions which traditionally had those systems, if you would prefer implementing them over a monarchy, for example. 
that is a, that's a really um, good question. And, and I, I think the answer to that question will be different in in every place. You know, so that's, you know, for example, in Italy and the, and the Italian style republics, you know, is that something you want to emulate? Because if I were Italian, I didn't think that's what I aspire to. Because, you know, people, a lot of people on the internet have this notion that some republics are good, like Venice, because they happened a long time in the past. But I think that, you know, for example, Venice and Genoa and all these other Italian republics do share a lot of the problems of modern republics in that they were dominated by wealth in the sense that the the pursuit of money were their highest ideals. And I, th- I, I think they also suffered from systemic corruption. And, and Venice Which is case. why I think I would describe myself, and that's why I, th- I think my co-hosts would agree that to describe ourselves as monarchists and not blanket traditionalists. Yeah. yeah. I mean, also, like, the Venetian Republic was designed to be corrupt. Um, yeah, I mean, it was hilariously corrupt. Yeah, I don't think, so I don't think that would be, like, an emulation. Worth it had... Yeah, I, I, so I'll give you an example. The Venetian Republic had 42 layers of election. Um, that is, between you, you um, Joe Bloggs elector, which is not the entire population, um, and it's not even qualified by money, it's qualified by, the, the first electors are qualified by membership in certain guilds, um, between you casting your ballot there, you being the apprentice or whatever, um, and the election of the Doge, there are 42 layers, if I remember correctly, um, near pre-summer reforms. So the like those systems were designed to be corrupt, and so I mean it, it's I I would actually suggest you read. Machiavelli's The Prince, because he also he has actually some quite interesting criticisms of republicanism in um, in in The Prince, because he essentially considers it like incredibly easy to take, like like he thinks it's almost trivial to perform like a coup against them or be authoritarian um, against like republics. And he he meant that in general, and he he gave the examples of like Venice and uh, the Mamluks was his other example. Um, but yeah, I mean it, it, the I, I think on the on the point of other forms uh, like especially say uh, medieval bishoprics. Um, the interesting part, at least, of medieval bishoprics was they were monarchies. Um, like the, the 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 bishops who ran a state um, were like they were monarchs. They were prince archbishops, and they were they were um, they they existed also within a specific context, which is the Holy Roman Empire. 
Um, yeah. yeah, in which, you know, and that's that's the whole atonic system of auto appointing bishops to, to positions within the HRE to limit the power of princely dynasties. Another thing, uh, another thing to uh, point out, and especially in the context of Italy, uh, Italy, nice one, is the a, a very important thing that happened uh, in many South European countries, and in the North too, but the whole Roman Empire was different, was the communal revolution, where the first cities uh, started regaining autonomy. In Portugal and Spain, this was a more less violent step, hence why it's not called it's not even referred to as a specific thing in, in Portuguese historiography. It's just a period of time when we, our king started issuing uh, fueros, specific laws and regulations to the cities, which functionally made them republics. So the question of traditional republics, uh, especially, especially when the farther we go back, is that, and I think this is very important, not only for discussions of monarchies, but also like discussions of politics, is that politics doesn't scale well? It, 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 it's it, it's not that things that go that work well small work uh, worse big. It's it's weird like that. So a lot of these smaller like quasi republican entities, these small new autonomous cities, were quite functional and worked perfectly well. And that's because democracy is a system that works well in a small scale, but starts running into intense issues later. However, as the rest of the rest of the hosts pointed out here, these the Italian city-state republics were also comparatively small-scale, and it all went wrong. So, the the base idea is that, and 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 this is where my point is: just because the system is old does not make it good. We have to reflect on why it worked, why it didn't work, and the context in which it, it existed. And I like I think I think this is what we must take from here is that. All of the Italian uh, city-state republics have capital I ignoble ends. Venice so was sold out uh, to the Habsburg by its uh, by its uh, by its leading functionaries. Genoa bankrupted itself out of existence. Tuscany cooped itself out of existence. Amalfi is so obscure; most of you don't even know Amalfi was a republic. I mean, I think people know more about Amalfi being a republic now because of uh, CK2. You know what? Fair point. It's, but it's the early start dates, and not everyone has that DLC. Uh, yeah, I mean... Yeah. Class consciousness, guys. Got out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the... the like, and the other point here is that, you know, all of these, both the medieval-style bishoprics and the, the Italian-style republics, um, they exist within the context of um, of the HRE um, and, like, the like the death of Matilda of Tuscany um, and the, the emergence of the, the commune form and the power of the bishops um, in Germany was specifically in response to a series of political crises and to a certain degree it it seems to me almost that you know we've gone from um we had the roman empire we had charlemagne this kind of stage of um 
whatever big monarch, um, whatever big states with vaguely defined nationalities to a period of kind of intense breakup, national re- national constitution, um, and now it will be interesting to see if the if the European project of the EU works out. Um, because also, I mean, there is the point that um, Kalergi, king that he was, did envisage the EU as a way to bring back the HRE um, and Charlemagne. So it will be interesting to see if that does work. I mean, it, EU law is quite heavily influenced by the Middle Ages and by um, Catholic Catholic. Uh, Net, like uh, legal theory um, that like emerges from the Middle Ages, which is why it has like subsidiarity and so forth um, built into it constitutionally. So you might be able to see something like that come out of the EU, but I it, it, it's it's looking less likely though. Um, so, I mean, also another thing I want to chat about the the prince bishops is that they were in a way the direct. Uh, product of monarchical investiture, which I mean, some you know, is that's a bit of like a breach of their authority to appoint bishops. So, so that is there is that aspect of the corruption that was in the church at that time, which made that a thing. Yeah, I mean, it's the the yeah, because obviously it was also. Um... There's I mean, a... The whole point of having, you know, bishops as vassals is that you can appoint those bishops, and then of course there's, and that was of course correlated to simony, where those bishops would then sell their titles, which came with land to other people, and you know, so it was, it it, it had a lot of issues when it came to that, and um, obviously nepotism, um, and I mean, I, I agree with you, uh, like. I think also it exists in a, like, it was a consularist world, um, conciliarist world. So the kind of, the way that the papacy works now, where the Pope appoints literally every bishop, um, like, w- like, that didn't exist. Like, bishops were basically appointed from their locality. Um, so it, it, it's, it's not, I'm not, I'm not sure that it can basically emerge short of like reunification with, um, with the Orthodox and like decentralization of the, of the, the, the Catholic church. Um, unless you're talking about like, I don't know, some other kind of theocracy. Um, I mean. I mean, I mean, the only other type of, I mean, the, the only other type I can think of would be the, would be the Vatican itself, you know, the papal states. But again, they're also like technically a monarchy. Yeah. yeah. Where the monarch is also the pope. Yeah, but I feel, I feel like that's such a, such an odd man out as, the, as there can never only be one of those. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, unless you, well, unless you get the good old pope baby, uh. Bugs. Schema, yeah, going on in, but no, the the 
I mean, I th- I think it's fair to assume that like the vicar of, of God on Earth is ki- kind of uh, kind of gets a free pass on classification. I mean, I God. I agree. God, I agree. Big up. Big up. Um, God. God knows it. The papal state's flag does not follow the law of tincture. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like two types of gold. Um, the and there's gold on silver on gold on silver. You know. Yeah, it's, it's based. Um, the, I mean, the mo- the most interesting thing about like theocracies today, um, with like obviously Iran is pretty much the only one that's like big theocracy, um, is that that was explicitly an attempt to realize the platonic republic um that's like uh that's like what uh Khomeini was trying to do uh and he's like he, he's fairly clear about this if you read his lecture series um on this it's like 70 pages so that's fairly based Especially because he has some like interviews where he says, like democracy as a whore and stuff like that. Um, so you know, kind of ch- that's kind of Chad. Um, but I'm not. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's broadly. Yeah. Um, I think I think that's broadly what I think of the idea of the Italian republics. Um, yeah. No, that's yeah. 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 So so next up is is Frank. Hello? Frank, your question. If you're speaking we can't we can't we can't hear you. Hello. Uh, well, okay. Yeah, so, you know, I'm just going to read out the question. Should cities be made for cars and public transport like a revamping of transport? The overwhelming response, I think, from everyone is a resounding no. No, Cities made made for cars are atrocious and an insult upon God's earth. Yeah, I, I think I think that you know, especially in the fifties and sixties, there was this wave of the car is new and it represents this ideal of personal freedom, and so we will try to build cities around the cars. And so I th- yeah, I mean, it- and I don't think that's I, I don't think that has worked because I don't think that cities designed around cars are good for cities, good for the rurality. Or, or even for car owners, because what it has led to is, is that it has led to these cities that sprawl out instead of having concentrated, you know, city centers. Like, you know, because if you look at, for example, cities pre late nineteenth century, where you know they they still had city walls, they were forced to come up with more interesting ways of keeping the cities dense, because they had to fit it all within the, the confines of the city walls. And so I think that has, you know, so, and that led to very human-sized, very walkable, very alive cities. 
good example, a good, a, a good, a massive example of that is the city of Luxembourg. The the whole city used to be a gargantuan fortress, and the bits that used to be inside the fortress are compact, but yet at the same time walkable and filled with activity. Yeah, or or for example, York has has a lot of that medieval, many of those medieval streets that are that are that I think are very good. You know, contrasting, and we're going to return to this. Probably not. This is not episode. It's not the last time where we're going to rant about Stevenage. The thing with Stevenage. Cheese. Oh, don't remind me. You know, they are they are very broad. And so one thing about, you know, Milton, Keynes, and Stevenage is they actually have a surprising amount of bike paths that, you know, but no one uses them because there's parking and roads everywhere. And so there's two major complaints against the car as a form of urban transportations. You know, one... They, of course, you know, they, they pollute significantly. But even if you could somehow make an unpolluting car, you would still be faced with the issue that cars are incredibly space inefficient. Consider for a moment that you have a car with one person in it. That one person is using up an incredible amount of space for, for just for himself. While, while if they communicate, were transported through bikes or rail, they would use up a lot less space each, and so you could move a lot more people through the city and have less congestion. Yeah, I mean, um... and and when it comes to the rurality, because I know the question was about cities, I think rail, for one, you know, keeps villages together because they have to be at train stations instead of sprawling out like miniature, you know, suburban nightmare cities. But also, you know, one, roads take up a lot more space than rail does. And so what happens is that a lot more of the nature and the scenery gets destroyed by roads, and they are much more expensive to maintain. And and so I think that possibly we should, and I'm quite radical on this. We should we should, we should take like de- deliberate steps against the car. You know, I mean, like, because if you look at London, a lot of people were saying, oh, if you build more bike lanes, the city will become more congested, and that's going to be worse for car owners. But actually, the opposite happened to be true, because what happened is that more people got off the road and therefore there was less traffic. And so I think people say that expanding rail and bike and other lower-tech, more human-scaled public transport or even, well, bikes are private transport, you know, that creates less options for cars. And they, they say this as like a drawback, but I think it's one of the primary benefits. So I would go as far as to say that you shouldn't have a car unless you have a specific reason to own a car. Like, for example, if if you like for the delivery of goods or if you are a handyman who needs to carry a lot of tooling and equipment, then you need a car. But if you're just some guy 
probably you don't need a car as long as you know there's able public transportation. And yeah. and so I think there is this trend in cities to make them less and less car focused. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, also um, I will ultimately point out that the the move towards uh, street friendly cities and like very rigidly planned cities uh, began with uh, Napoleon the Third. Napoleon the Third was the first guy to seriously reorganize cities around um, having wide planned streets that laid the foundation for for modern yeah uh, the, 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 fa- the famous boulevards of Paris the famous boulevards of Paris um, which are because it was made by Bonaparte um, is by definition not trad um, and thus bad. So that I think is the official monarchist take has to be that we must oppose the Bonapartists and their lives at every turn, including on the necessity for for wide city streets. We must we must return to the to tradition with a V and have all of our cities become medieval side uh, side street hell holes. Yeah, I mean I mean side streets are are based and you know because then there was this thing in 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 Walthamstow where they 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 destroyed a lot of parking and car surface area to create like walkable streets and like bike paths. And so a lot of people, you know, in Walthamstow said, oh, this is going to be terrible. All the shops are going to close. But actually, the the opposite happened because now it was walkable. So more people were less scared to come to the shop. Well, scared might not be the, the right term. But I think, I think cars have taken from us collectively a lot of public space. And I don't know that they merit that. Also, I I mean, I just know that from... Because um, I've lived in a city where I've walked everywhere, and I've also lived in a very rural area where I've had to drive places. Even if the actual distance to the shop is the same distance, um, I found if it, if I can walk it, um, I'd prefer to walk it over over driving because there's a degree of effort actually in in driving. Uh, that is like annoying and yeah, there's this thing, especially that new drivers do, where you know they spend a lot of time trying trying to find a parking spot right next to the shop, and so they spend more time trying to find that optimal parking spot than just taking a parking spot further away and walking to the shop entrance. That I think is really funny. Okay. Yeah. I I, I that's enough. Car and car attitudes for now. I feel very strongly about this, okay? I, I agree completely with Bronze. Um, and I, I think if we want to be epic, epic trad, um, trads, we have to oppose uh, the car in all its forms. We must oppose the Bonapartist car conspiracy and their attempt yeah. to destroy the modern city. Exactly, exactly, exactly right. Um, yeah, but not just the city, but also. I mean, they've wreaked havoc everywhere. The the real terror was not the guillotine, but the car. 
I mean, the car has a bigger the has rubber. A... The rubber guillotine uh, <laughs> is what we should is what we should call it. Yeah, well, you hit it here, folks. Made of tarmac. Yeah, you've a heard it here. Made of tarmac. Um, you've heard it here, folks. First, yeah, monarch is unfiltered. Think... Officially anti-car. I think, like you know, we should do like the luddites, but instead of throwing you know things into cogs, I think we should you know start go outside and start tearing up the roads. Get get a pick, and just go for it at your local road. Just you know, in the name of traditionalism. Exactly. With a B. Exactly. Trad. Um, Dwarven had a question. I think it was. It was. To, uh, yeah. yeah. He had a question. Yeah, it's him. Yeah, sorry. I was chicken something. Uh, do you think you, as in all the hosts, believe that solar powered vehicles or Tesla's hyperloops or hyperlanes are going to become normalized in our lifetime? I don't think anything from Tez, like from from Musk, is like especially his like weird fucking sci-fi ideas are going to become normalized. Um, Solar-powered vehicles, possibly. I think I can see yeah, like I mean, solar-powered bikes. Um, I, I don't think that solar-powered vehicles would take the sh the form of like cars with solar panel roofs. I th but I think you know, like electric vehicles. That were indirectly powered through solar is, is I think, a possibility. Bikes, I think, could be a good example. Like electric. Yeah, bikes. like you have, you have, yeah, like you have an electric bike and you have a solar oh, panel on your roof and you charge it at home. I could see that becoming fairly widespread. And I think it, if I batteries think, get small enough, efficient. Yeah, if 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 because that yeah, and batteries are the central element to, to renewable power. Because the problem with power is that you can't store it in any sort of useful sense. So for example, if you have a coal plant, if you run the coal plant, you can see how much power are people consuming and you can burn the correct amount of coal. And so that creates steam, which powers an enormous multi-ton steel turbine. And that turbine has enough inertia that it can create an even amount of power and you can adjust it very precisely to match the grid. I don't know if that is, you know, I mean, I think that's a, a challenge that you have with, for example, solar in that, you know, the sun isn't always shining when the grid is using the most power. So you have to be in a position where you can store enough power that you can run a grid wholly on solar. And I, the curve. I don't think, yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to have an evenness of power because the sun is not even. And so you have to make up for that with battery storage. So current batteries are not there yet. And that would be the big solution. I yeah. Think. So that, I mean, you know, you know, I know you love talking about Musk. He's built a, a mega factory that makes batteries. As I, I don't think I don't know how that's going to work out for him, but I, I think he's onto that batteries are big. I just don't think he's doing it in a very reasonable way. As for the hyperloops and hyperlanes, I I put very little credence into that. I don't think that's the future. I mean, that's just like extreme cars essentially, because it's like super inefficient, 
like like the the whole underground like it's an underground like it's underground car systems it's like super inefficient essentially yeah no i don't think that's that's it at all i mean i think i think the solution you know because i think you know there's only so much that we can battery so i think we have to meet in the middle power consumption has to come down for it to be reasonable at all because there's just a fundamental hard limit to how efficient batteries become become, can become yeah um, so I don't think that's why, like, for example, a lot of cities like Tokyo have these like low energy carts that run on loops so small and with such regularity that they don't even need timetables. So I think walking, biking, and low tech, quite simple rail systems are the key for cities. I think the main thing, I think you could power it off of solar, but the main obstacle in that is that power consumption overall has to come down and that means space efficient solutions like walking and biking which also don't use power and lower tech solutions and i think you know we just we just have to move around less also and like that would also then require like building up um so like yeah i I think that cities are going to have to embrace verticality but you have to you have to make it in such a way that it is you know sort of palatable. I don't think skyscrapers are it. I mean, the, the real base mood would be something like a more hygienic, uh, Kulong, uh, Kualun, like block city. Was it? You know that that one square of land. In oh, Kul- Kul- the Kualun walled city. Yeah, the Kualun walled city. Because supposedly people actually really liked living there because it was very um, it was very communal. Like they they were like they oh, had yeah. a lot of they had a lot of community there. Um, you so have people... you have that that's actually incredibly common in um, in a lot of uh, basically the basically in favelas and all like those kinds of places. People do live poorly there, but they live in a community that they often don't want to to leave. And the fact that most government uh, aid these areas is just uh, fucking uh, gentrification. There is a tendency for the people in those areas to not even want that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you know that, that. I mean, that's I think like a, a a very important byproduct of building things on a human scale and not a car scale. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I. I yeah. I, I, um, yeah. I mean, now we're just that. This. This is officially an anti-car show. Like that. Yeah. yeah that's. That's the whole topic. God but, King anti-car. The motto. God King bike. God <laughs> King bike. Um. I mean, Charles would probably definitely agree with you there. Yeah. I. I think. Yeah. I mean. I, yeah. That's. I think he's doing a lot of. You know. And I mean, because he's built this. This town of. Of Poundbury. You know. A sort of like an exponentiation of his ideals of what a city is, and that is very anti-car and try and tries to be, on as human a scale as possible. So I think that's. You know. I. I hope people, move in that direction because I know people who live there quite like it. Okay. Next um, question. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think, and I think that's going to be the final question. question. Yeah, because we're yeah, almost two hours. Yeah, we have two final questions. 
Yeah, told you and um, we have told you's and uh, tokens question. Yeah. So, so. We, we can do we can do token. Okay. Hello, token. What's your question? Let me put this in the most sensitive way possible. Why are so many monarchists LARP and cringe? Quite sensible. The we I, have I, think I, I think part of that is like the internet in general. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean we've done a special on it. Only a special because it's an episode. Yeah. Yeah, the LARP and the cringe. Yeah. It might I mean, be a sequel to the LARP and cringe, we never know. Yeah, very likely. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's it's a side effect of the internet, you know, like the 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 the, the larpiest, cringiest stuff, like like the scum floats to the top. Yeah, like we like even even ye all the uh, mad monarchist in his ancient blog criticized the ye monarchist, so. The internet, due to its internal structure, is just a place where LARP and cringiness comes to the top. Yeah, I, I don't think it's 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 unique, but I also think yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 but you know, there's this thing that it attracts a very like particular type of person. Yeah. Who like, you know he has not developed his analysis, and so you know he goes after the most sort of aesthetic, surface level. Low hanging fruit possible. Yeah, and so it creates this worldview that is not based on a whole lot, and so then it just devolves into LARP and cringe. Yeah. I mean, to, to be fair to the monarchist community, I mean, there's, there's like worse ones, at least in terms of like, like, I mean, it, you can like, tank, like, tank, like, tankies have like a lot of issues with like, uh, sexual abuse as well as like the alt right. I mean, I mean, it's a thing uh, across an, the internet is that the internet just sort of. Monarchist lap and cringe is humiliating and annoying, but it's far from the worst type of ideological based lap and cringe there is. I think yeah. is the point is the point I am is trying to make. Like, yes, it is annoying, and it's especially annoying to most monarchists because we're already a niche thing, and having what amounts to very uh, naive people just giving the worst possible justifications for the vine right uh, in, in a very public manner does not help. So it probably bites, uh, it probably stings us more than it really is because, like, at least I have yet to hear of, I, I don't fucking know, some mod in our monarchism Reddit being, uh, being accused of sexual abuse. Like, yeah. Should we, should we have the last question then? And then... Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, yeah. and we've gone full circle because we started with Todju and now we're going to finish with Todju. It all begins and ends in Portugal. Yeah, yeah, or Scotland as we like to call it. Yeah, so Todju, uh, go ahead, what's your question? How do you feel about Keynes against the idea of forming a monarchist political party? Because they may fear that the institution may involve in a partisan dispute or something like that. Basically, the infamous question of there is a monarchist party. Why is the why isn't the king a member of said monarchist party? I mean, I, um, I think it, I think it ultimately hangs on on risk management. Yeah, yeah, because you know, if if you as as a monarchist 
pretender, as a uh, you know, as a monarchical pretender, stake your claim on a particular party. You're sort of, you you know, come hell or high water, you're now sort of tied to that party, and so you don't want to commit yourself until you have to a reasonable degree prove that that party is not LARP and cringe, as it were. Because your reputation, if you were to attach yourself to it, now stakes itself on that party. And also, it's often not that good optics, because it then it just, to a lot of outsiders, it could look like you're just doing out of sheer self-interest, because you have a fantasy about becoming king. Also, uh, often these kinds of political parties, at least historically, were uh, weird or whatever. I mean, the the Action Francaise, um, uh, Moreau was a um, like occultist, like spiritualist. Um, occult is the wrong word. He was a spiritualist. Like he believed in magic and like uh, communing with like spirits of the dead, which was pretty popular at the time. Um, it was, however, not a good thing to be involved in if you're a, if you're a, um, if you're a Catholic. And so that was a big reason why the Orleanists didn't support it. Prior to that, obviously, for a long time, political parties weren't really like as much of a thing as they are now. Um, like and, and you know, monarchy in itself, you know, has had like a thing of being anti-party. That's often been one of its main drawing points. Yeah, yeah, anti-parliamentarianism is is a is a a big a big thing. Um, I mean, I I I'm I'm not all that opposed to it. I I, I think if monarchists want to like put themselves forward that would necessitate like some degree of support from kings i also think kings now at least will probably be less opposed to it um like i think there's a there's a greater recognition now of like the part like a part political party is a tool at the end of the day and so it needs to be used responsibly as it were um you know you don't you don't take a hammer to a child sort of thing um but uh, uh, yeah, I don't know if McCosk has more of an opinion on this. Though. Yeah, uh, I, I, the the other thing is that um, political parties are often also kind of weird in terms of authority. Told you because he's Portuguese, he's more familiar with what I'm going to say. But this is also good. The Portuguese Monarchist Party uh, uh, that currently exists itself created the like brought back from the dead the dynastic dispute. Yeah, everyone was pretty much on board with the current claimant. Well, monarchists, that is, not the whole country. And apparently the leader of the party at the time, for some reason, just had a fallout with the king and decided to just create a massive controversy in which he fished out a second claimant out of the blue, basically. The legitimacy, the legitimacy is... I mean, the whole question about Portuguese dynastical legitimacy is... It's hilarious on many levels, but he just but he just brought another person onto the whole discussion for no other reason than he had a fallout for a falling out with the king. So there's also a kind of notion that political party leaders are 
prickly and sometimes things don't go well. So there's also that. that it's, it's like... It's a, it's an unknown factor that sometimes backfires. Yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, it's risk management. Yeah. And uh, I think yeah. that's it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So, yeah, thanks to everyone so. who contributed. Indeed. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll maybe do one of these again. And Sounds good. Yeah, um, yeah so, I think that's... Uh... Yeah, so that's good, good discussion, really. From us. Yeah, it's kind of 